Our gracious Father, in the name of Christ, we come. Lord, to sit at your feet once more this Lord's day. That we might be instructed, Lord, in the ways of this world. In the reign of your Messiah. Your Holy One that you have installed and established and given great power and authority to. Help us as Christian men and women to understand these things. Help us as a church to understand and embrace these biblical truths. And then help us to apply it, Lord, in this world that we live in. And particularly in this nation, Lord, where there, there are a lot of professing Christians in this land. And yet, Lord, the political theory that so many of us Christians possess is less than biblical and less, Lord, and in fact detrimental to your kingdom and to your people. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn them open to Psalm 2. We'll be spending a good bit of time in Psalm 2 um, because of all of not just the teaching that is contained in Psalm 2, which is a lot there, but also um, addressing our own um, cultural conversations. There's a lot of conversation that's going on right now in our circles about uh, national religion and what that means and what that looks like. And so I hope to clear up some of uh, those ideas and I hope to present to you the uh, old reformed understanding of what it is to have Jesus as the Messiah who is reigning and ruling and what that means for the world, the nation's the nations of this world. So let's read from Psalm 2, and then I will begin our lesson. Hear the word of the Lord. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son and do not become angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
We're still focusing on those first three verses to sort of establish what I want us to consider, and that is a sound political theory, a sound political practice. Now, I use the word political, which may shock some of you or it may disappoint some of you because I know politics has such a, a terrible reputation. But the fact is, the word politics in and of itself is a very good word. It's just the common economy among men, how we are to relate to one another, how we are to, to live among one another, and, that, and that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And yet you probably, or most of you, are familiar with the term or the statement that if you're out in, in company or when you have family over, you know, the old saying goes, there's just two things you don't talk about, and that is politics and religion. Well, it's interesting because the very statement itself forms a dichotomy between the two, as if they're different. Now, they are different, but they are not disconnected. And what I hope to demonstrate over the next several Lord's Days is that as Christians, we ought to have a robust understanding of politics and be terribly interested in it. Part of the problem we are facing in this country and around the world is that Christians had abided uh, in this theology that told us that this world is not good and we shouldn't want to be in it and we should just wait to go to heaven and therefore we just give up all your earthly rights and endeavors and just wait to die and go to heaven. Now that, that's dispensationalism in a nutshell. You know, we just can't wait to leave this earth and go to heaven and all we're doing here is just, well, biding our time. Well, that's an ungodly way to see the, the gift of life that God has given us to live in this world and the gift of the world itself. We ought to enjoy this world. We ought to make use of this world. We ought to take dominion over this world and we ought to make this world something that glorifies God in every Way And that would include, brothers and sisters, politics. In fact, by the time I finish with Psalm 2, I hope to establish it's not just needed, it's necessary. Politics is not just needed, it's necessary. And yet I'm on various online ch chat rooms that talk about the evil of government and the you know, the, the man-centered government and government is no good. And these are Christians. These are Christians that are uh, toying with this idea that gov God, government has nothing to do with God and, and government has nothing to do with the Bible. And, and yet, I'm going to demonstrate to you that government is everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere. In fact, you have to close your eyes and not want to see it because it is almost in every book of the Bible in some form or fashion. What we're going to learn is that government, like the family, you know, family is a family economy, government 
It's, a, it's God's gift. The government of men, the establishment of, of national leadership is a gift of God. And it has a very specific design purpose. And we're going to see that. So what I want to do is I'm going to, I'm going to read from two different sources and I'm going to hopefully have time to give you seven principles, seven principles that's going to help establish this understanding we have as we begin to look at Psalm 2 and other Psalms as well, because it's not just Psalm 2 that teaches this. This is, well, this is in dozens of places of Scripture, that is, this, this reigning of the Lord's Messiah. It's, it's in dozens and dozens of places. Now, am I trying to turn you into some type of political junkie? No, I'm not. But what, again, what we have to realize is there's going to, I think even for you political junkies, I think you're going to end up with a different perspective of politics as well. You're going to, when you begin to see that it's not just a hobby, that it's something very divine and biblical, and we ought to approach it in a certain, with a, even a certain reverence and honor, because it's an institution that has a tremendous impact upon families, as we're watching, as we're witnessing, right? When you think about justice, you, you think about uh, education, the importance of justice, the importance of education, the, import, the importance of national affairs. How does one nation deal with another, right? Foreign affairs, all of these things are religious in nature. And that's what we're going to see. I have, I came to the place probably 10 years ago, and I guess this is a testimony, might get me in trouble. But I came to the place, I guess it was in, well, it's been over 2000, it's been over 10 years, it was in 2010, that I came to the place that I believe we have to have a national religion. There ought to be a church in the state. And you don't have to hold that view, but at least you're going to see why I hold that view. And now that's, I think, different than what we're seeing going around today in this national religion, or what is it called? It's um, uh, the books that, have, there's been a couple of books that have kind of been published and going out that a lot of Christians are reading, and I think it's good. I haven't read any of them. I don't think I really need to read any of them because the two books that I'm going to recommend to you, well, they answer all the questions. Now, the two books that I'm going to give you to, for your reading is Messiah the Prince by William Symington. You need to read the book. And The Church and the State by Thomas Burks, B-I-R-K-S. Messiah the Prince and the Church and the State by Thomas Burks. Now, Thomas Burks, the Messiah the Prince, you can actually still buy the book. You can go online and download the free PDF. 
Both of these books were written in the 1800s. The Thomas Burke's, now you can still buy the hardback, I think, book, uh, Messiah the Prince. You can still find that book. You know, you can buy that for your library or you can download the PDF. The Thomas Burke's book, it probably only going to be able to download it as a PDF. It's been out of print for a long, long time. Okay. But what both of these men advocated was a state church and the importance and the need in order to preserve Christianity to have a state church. And I'm going to unfold what all that means. So you just listen up, listen closely. I'm going to read. Um, I'm going to read from a couple of people that you know really well. One of them is Alexander McLeod. And Alexander McLeod wrote a foreword to Messiah the Prince. Now, Alexander McLeod has the reputation of being a very worthy Presbyterian, Reformed Presbyterian of the 1800s. And he wrote a foreword to Messiah the Prince, and it's called The Moral Character of the Federal Constitution. He's referring to the United States Constitution. Now, I'm just going to read his foreword, and I'm going to try to read it slow enough that we can, if you're taking notes, you can catch some important parts of it. Here's what he says. He says, God is not acknowledged by the Constitution. In a federal government erected over several distinct and independent states, retaining each the power of local legislation, it is not to be expected that specific provisions should be made for the interest of religion in particular congregations. The general government is erected for the good of the United States and especially for the management of their foreign concerns. But no association of men of moral purpose can be justified in an entire neglect of the sovereign of the world. And that's something that I've waffled on myself uh, back and forth. Statesmen, he goes on, statesmen in this country had undoubtedly in their eye the abuse of religion for mere political purposes, which in the nations of the old world had corrupted the sanctuary, the church, and laid the foundation for persecution of godly men. The principal writers upon government Friendly to the cause of civil liberty in the kingdoms of Europe had generally advocated principles which in their application have led upon the part of civilians to disrespect for religion itself. These principles had no small influence upon the founders of this republic. And this was the case in a remarkable degree with the continental politicians such uh, nor are Sidney and John Locke to be entirely exempted from the charge. In the overthrow of those particular establishments favorable to the Church of England, which existed here before the revolution, it was natural, considering the state of religious information in the community, to go to an opposite extreme, but no consideration will justify the framers of the federal constitution and the administration of the government and withholding the recognition of the Lord and his anointed. 
from the grand charter of the nation. On our daily bread, we ask blessing. At our ordinary meals, we acknowledge the Lord of the world. We begin our last testament for disposing of worldly estates in the name of God and shall be guiltless with the Bible in our hands to disclaim the Christian religion as a body politic. Alexander McLeod, 1815. Now what he says there is that men went too far in order to address the political persecution of churchmen who told these politicians, these magistrates, these dukes, these kings that they were wrong. And so in order to sort of to, to remedy that, the Americans went too far and basically established no federal acknowledgement of the Lord and his anointed. And that's always been a, an Achilles heel of the federal, the document, okay? And I've gone back and forth on those, and I still waffle back and forth on those. And this is not to, to win that argument one way or the other, but it is true that there is no acknowledgement of the Lord and his anointed. And that bothered many men. And it bothered Patrick Henry. And that's why the, the Bill of Rights says what it says, because primarily to pacify Patrick Henry and his group um, to accept the United States Constitution. All right. Well, let's look at another. Let me read another introduction for you. And this one is found in Thomas uh, Burke's Let's see here. This is the introduction in the book, The Church and the State. And it's under the heading, The National Profession of Christian Truth. Now, let me, before I read it, let me pause. Now, brothers and sisters, what we are addressing and dealing with in this culture, in this culture is this melting pot idea, this diversity. Because it's not just a diversity. We're not talking about people with different skin color. We're talking about people with different worldviews and cultures. How people see justice. How people see peace. How people see violence. How, how, people, how people relate to one another. Those are religious and cultural ideas, aren't they? So when you're talking about this melting pot, when you're talking about this, di this diversity and then the various gods that come with it, the idolatry that comes with it, you have a massive problem on your hands, particularly in America where we want to be neutral. Far too long we have allowed politicians to make this claim. I'm a Christian, but I won't let my faith get in the way of my politics. Now, that is impossible. That is an impossibility. Your faith will be meted out in your politics. And there, as we will see, and as we saw last week, in the folly of the nations, there's no neutrality, is there? So listen to these men, they're wise and they are 
way above me and ahead of me in many ways, and this is why I'm reading them for your benefit. Listen to Thomas Burks. He says, the total divorce of politics from religion is impossible. The Christian who desires it must have forgotten the meaning of words or have renounced his allegiance to his divine master. A strong. For political science includes the whole range of social duties toward our fellow men and religion. Our whole duty towards God. These cannot be sundered until men have consented to live without God in the world and God himself has relieved them from responsibility to him for their social conduct, this is doubly impossible, meaning God has not relieved anybody of their responsibility to live before him with certain duties and responsibilities. Even the most irreligious age witnesses will be left like Elijah and the 7,000 in Israel, you know, Ahab. Mammon, to the neglect of their maker, the laws of duty are still above them and around them, a firmament of unchangeable and everlasting truth. What Burks is saying is you can't escape his world and those moral maxims that we talked about last week. In creation and providence, in the law and the gospel, God has joined these two spheres of thought inseparably, and man cannot put them asunder, mean politics and religion. The most worldly senators and statesmen are compelled, however reluctant, to meddle constantly with religious questions. Again, the laws of providence do not sleep because men may shut their eyes and refuse to see them. The judgments of God will not cease to light on ungodly nations because a policy of religious indifference may have found public favor and been enrolled with loud applause among the statutes of the realm. When Belshazzar and his courtiers praised the gods of silver and gold and denied and dishonored the God of heaven, the handwriting of doom was already on the wall. And should the states of modern Christendom, those iron toes of the image of Nebuchadnezzar, copied the degeneracy of the head of gold and agree with and agree that religious truth is only a distraction in their councils and that worldly wealth and pleasure are to be their highest aim they cannot blot out one letter from that handwritten of eternal truth from that handwriting of eternal truth which denounces woe on men and nations whenever they depart from the living god now that's worth repeating to your friends because people can turn a blind eye they can act like this stuff doesn't matter all they want it doesn't change God's sovereign providence it doesn't change the moral maxims that he's established in the land the question is my brothers and sisters will we agree with it right will we see it and 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 what we're what we're hearing this has been the reformed This has been the reformed view. It's only been within the last couple of hundred years that 
the Reformed faith has suffered a great division between politics and religion. You might say that even Presbyterians, Reformed Presbyterians in our own land have been Americanized. They've been constitutionalized to see the wall of separation between church and state. And those two should never, ever, ever come together. It's not that we believe that the church and state are the same. We don't. This doesn't. They don't promote that. But they're, but they're distinct. The church and state are distinct in their roles and responsibilities before God. But they're not separate. Okay? They're not separate. So there's a case made that we cannot ignore the relationship between religion and politics. So what does that mean? Well, it means we need to have a solid biblical handle on those things. And it means we need to know where the line is. Um, let's see, maybe... I'm going to give you, I guess this is going to be a testimony. I'm breaking right here. I'm going to give you a little personal testimony. As I was, because I was more of a traditional constitutionalist. I was more, um, the way I viewed civil government was small, minute, micro, the, the smaller, the better, because it's really a sort of necessary evil, um, you know, a constitutional view. That's the Republican view, right? That's the conservative. We want government to be as small as possible. Okay. But what happened is when I began, it just couldn't reconcile that with Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean that government needs to be a behemoth. But here's where the rubber kind of met the road as I was struggling with a practice of the Church of Scotland. Who paid the ministers of the Church of Scotland? Does anyone know? The civil magistrate. And I used to take offense to that. I, I, would, I was just like, what a hangover from Catholicism or whatever. I mean, this is just horrible. And, and why, why would they do that? I was so immature. I was so ignorant. As I began to develop a biblical understanding of government and the government's role in religion, look, not around it, in it, they have a duty to see righteousness established in the land. A Christian magistrate has a God-given duty to see righteousness preached and maintained. And that's the job of the church. Not the civil magistrate. That's the job of the church. But what's the civil magistrate doing? They're aiding it. They're helping it. Now think about it this way. Scotland took up taxes. It's the job of the state to spend those taxes in a, a, a way that benefits the nation, correct? Now, Scotland could have sent their money to Ukraine. Or they could spend it in the establishment of righteous ministers 
to preach the gospel and to see the common man rise up in his virtues, his character, in his moral understanding of this world. Now, who's going to, now what kind of citizen is that person going to be? A better one. The patriotism rises when there is a sense of God and country, right? That's an old statement. That's an old phrase. That's, but it's right for God and country. Understanding that it's very, there is something about the land. There is something about your kinfolk. There is something about someone invading your property that is not right. And it's wrong for them to just want to come in and seize your property, your wife, your children, your lands, and all of these things. And so you rise up for God and country and defend your house. And the state has an interest in this. The state has an interest in the what? The education of the people. An educated people is going to be a more creative people. They're going to be more inventive people. They're going to be more diligent, industrious people. Ignorant people are no use. Ignorant is a, is a darkness on the land. And the state has the the prerogative and the right to what foster and stir up and fan in the flame national character and so i see it was very right for the civil magistrate to pay these ministers and they knew it and they knew it and they accepted it and it's the same thing it was the same place it was the same way in geneva by the way do you know who called calvin to geneva the magistrate called Calvin to Geneva to do what? Pastor the church and preach the gospel. <laughs> because the city needed help. It wasn't a welfare program they established. It was the preaching of the gospel they established. And it, Geneva came to be known as heaven on earth. It was such a peaceful place in the end it didn't start off that way so I give you that little testimony to demonstrate brothers and sisters I believe that most of us have been have been exposed to a very truncated understanding of of the Bible and civil government and these two books will help clear much of that up let me give you Seven principles, seven principles that the morality of national religion rests upon. The first, that all kings and princes and civil rulers to whom the gospel of Christ has been made known are bound to embrace it with their whole heart and to submit themselves with all their royal and princely power to the supreme authority of the Son of God. They are bound to rule in the fear of God, to avow their allegiance to Christ, and to do all things to the glory of their Lord and Master in heaven. That's principle number, excuse me, number one. Now, this is the same principle I used many, many, many months back when I, when I preached a sermon on the obligation to believe the gospel. You may remember that or not. I said, you're obligated that when the gospel is preached to accept it and believe it. Just as the civil magistrates are what? Obligated to accept the gospel 
the gospel of Scripture and believe it. And then become subservient to the king of kings. So that's principle number one. Principle number two. Now, here's the thing. What I want you to see and recognize. I want you to be thinking this because you probably already are. What happens when they don't do this? If this is, if this is true, right, and this is the, their obligation, this is their duty, what happens when they do not submit to this duty? So keep that in mind. Number two, they ought therefore to base their laws on the revealed laws of God, to execute them with a direct appeal to his authority, to own themselves his servants, and to honor him with acts of public worship in prayer, praise, adoration, and thanksgiving. It should be commonplace for the civil magistrates to worship the Christian God. It is very biblical for nations to establish holidays like Thanksgiving. That is biblical to set apart a day nationally that the nation can have a, a, a day of recognizing whether they want to or not, whether they participated in not, but that it is a day whereby we as a nation would give thanks to Almighty God in heaven as submission to his authority and rule. Now, now, like every holiday in this land, it's become so secularized, that's not the case. You would, what would that look like in our land? Well, you would have the presidential address. And what would the president do in this address? Well, he would acknowledge God's good providences and express thanksgiving for those. He would acknowledge the care that God has given to this land and nation. He would acknowledge the gifts of a nation. What are the gifts of the nation? Well, brilliant men and women political theorists, people that have a, a, a handle on statesmanship, um, technology, acknowledging. I mean, when there's great advancement in technology, is that not a gift of the Lord? I mean, can you imagine having a, 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 an address of, uh, of the union, right, where the president begins to rattle off all of the various things that year that is meaningful and matter and impactful for the whole nation and acknowledging that it comes from the hand of God's whose blessing is upon this nation and how we are his servants. That's what this looks like. Now, there'll be some that tell us, well, we can't do that because, you know, the, you know, the, the, the well, the, the, the Hindus will get upset. So, the Mormons or the, the uh, Muslims will be upset. Well, well, first of all, we're not acknowledging Allah. We're not acknowledging the, the one million gods of Hinduism. We're acknowledging the one true and living God. We're exclaiming allegiance to him for his blessing. We're exclaiming the one who's a, what? He who is appointed his son, the Messiah, over the nations. Psalm 2. The, he sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. For he has installed his king upon Zion. Rule number three. 
their duty as God's ministers are for the good of the people has a wider range than the security of life and property and armed force and the fear of punishment. They are bound to honor moral excellence above worldly riches and to care for the wants of the soul more than those of the body and to seek that truth and justice, religion and piety may be established among their people to all generations. Romans 13. Now, Let's just look at this idea we are bound, that the civil magistrate would be uh, bound to honor moral excellence, like bravery. We do that in wartime, don't we? We give out medals of valor to those who showed great courage in the midst of horrible circumstances and dangerous situations, but, but those who had risen to the occasion and done her, just really heroic feats and, and we give them medals. And it's the same way in the civilian realm. It would be the job of the government to even hand out the highest civilian honor of those that might do something that would what? Be such a, a blessing and an aid and a benefit to the nation. I think someone like even Mother Teresa has received a, um, an, an, an achievement award. Why? Because of all the work that she's done what, with, with uh, orphan children. That would be certainly an aid to the state, wouldn't it? Right? Who collects these children off the street? How do we get the children off the street? But not just throw them away like trash, but how do we take care of them? How do we help and aid them? Well, that would be a huge virtue for any, well, for any city, wouldn't it? And that person we recognized. It's the job of the state to recognize these people and to applaud their character and high moral excellence because that's the aim. Look at our moral fabric of this land and look at our government. They are the represent, representatives of this people. Why are they liars, backstabbers, why are they feckless? Because the people are. Number four. The visible church is ordained by Christ for the spread of the gospel, divine truth, that families, states, and kingdoms may be made obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ and learn to do his will. There's your relationship between the two. Christian rulers then are bound not only to become its members, but to promote its labor of love and to give it every help in their power for its growth and increase. The state should not become a stumbling block to the church in her function of preaching the gospel but aid her in doing that. Help her in doing that. Which means our missionaries that are in foreign lands that are abused. Now, let me give you the basic principle. Let me just say that I have a, a son. And I send this son out to perform a task. 
And when that son goes out and performs this task, he becomes violated and abused. What is my role as the father? To come to his aid, to come to his protection. Now let's translate that to the state. Citizens are nothing more than the children of the nation. And when they go out into these foreign lands for the righteous purpose of spreading the gospel and they become kidnapped, abused, raped, and tortured and all this, it is the role of the Christian government to go and, well, retrieve their people, their children. And brothers and sisters, this is not hard stuff. The state is nothing more than an enlarged family. And that's why the Old Testament calls kings, fathers, and nursing mothers to its citizens. So the church has a primary role in the well-being of the state, its, its um, uh, benefits and whatnot. Number five, rulers are bound, therefore, in their laws to recognize the visible church in its corporate existence, its physical existence, its value and worth and divine calling to encourage and also regulate the offerings of its members to help its efforts for the instruction of all Christian people and to honor its doctrines and laws in the whole constitution of the state. Now, there are some things in there that many Americanized Christians would have a problem with. Number one, where it says to regulate the offerings of its members. Well, I just talked about how the Scott Church of how the ministers were paid through the state in Scotland and in Geneva. Um, But I'm not mitigating what Thomas Burke says. I'm giving it to you. We can agree with it or not. The point being is there is a co-relationship between the church and the state, and they benefit one another. Number six. Now, as you know, and you're thinking this, this is so foreign to us today. This is so foreign to us today. But we're going to learn how biblical so much of it really is. Number six, when the church is rent with schisms and corrupted by false doctrines and immoral practices, other duties will devolve on Christian rulers. Their office requires them to discern between saving truth and dangerous error to resist sectarian bigotry and unbelieving indifference and to honor every part of the church in proportion to its religious soundness and power of conforming social benefit to repress grosser evils and encourage all things pure, lovely, and of good report. This is another principle that makes many American Christians so scared. And that is, what do you mean that the civil magistrates have an interest in church schisms, in church corruption, in moral practice. Well, why does, as I've mentioned, why does the state have an interest in a, in a strong church? Because a strong church will create a strong citizenship. A faithful church will create a faithful citizenship. A righteous church preaching, teaching, discipleship, 
I mean, cultivating, understanding roles, duties, responsibilities, when, when the population understands this, by and large, generally, then the state will be stronger for it. And so they have an invested interest in a strong church. And when churches become corrupt or fall into f- false doctrines like so many of these Pentecostal movements, the, the state would have every right to go, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Y'all need to sort this out. Brothers and sisters, who called the Westminster Assembly? Parliament. Why did Parliament call the Westminster Assembly? Because if you read the introduction to the Westminster Confession, it says because of the degradation of their culture and society and people. They had become so low morally, they believed that the way to remedy the depression and the darkness over their land morally was to what? Revive religion. And this is the principle. And I think the state also has a way of protecting the church against hostile, false religions like Islam. They have destroyed Europe. They have destroyed London. And I've seen it with my own eyes. They have, where church bells once told now is nothing but an imam calling for prayers. That's what's happened to that land. Why? Because the government became neutral in its, well, in its political theory. And there is no neutrality. And now they will pay, well, they are paying a terrible price because the crime has gone up like 400%. And look, crime against what? Mainly women. Mainly women. Why? Because those men have no respect for females. By and large, they believe they ought to be subjugated under their foot, literally. And they are paying, look, London is paying a terrible price. Last principle, number seven. These duties of the Christian ruler are confirmed by the testimony of Scripture, which we will look at, and in full harmony of the true rights of conscience and the precepts and lessons of the gospel. But while it is the duty of every Christian to aim at this high standard in every act of political life, its full attainment is reserved for the promised time of the restitution of all things when the earth shall be full of the glory of the Lord. And this is what Burks is saying. It will never be fully done in this life. It's never going to, that is, it's never going to come to its full blossom of harmony in this life. But when the Lord comes back, what will we find? It'll be perfect harmony between the Lord and the nations. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for. If you have a question, though, I think it would be a good time. We can take a few minutes and answer your questions. And then next week, we'll begin looking at many passages of Scripture that are related to these principles. Yes, sir.